0: on Fuzzy Logic. We are talking the science of summer. It's getting hot outside, lots of things going on in this time of summer. What's the science behind it all? Well, we're going to find out right here today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us today as uh, we take you through another hour of science. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for that wonderful show beforehand. Tribute to Dolores O'Reilly, uh the lead singer of The Cranberries, and... Uh, You know, appropriately, we could have done zombie science or something like that today uh, to play tribute to her as well. Um, But we haven't. We've gone with the uh, world of summer and what's happening out there in hot Australia at the moment. And joining me in the studio today to discuss the science of summer is the wonderful Jill. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Brad. Thank you very much for joining in this morning. I know you're a lover of summer.
1: Oh, always, definitely. The hotter the better.
0: <laughs> Indeed. And uh, for me, I prefer the shade uh, generally, <laughs> although I don't mind a bit of warmth putting on the uh, the shorts and the sandals and that sort of thing. Uh, it, uh, it is a nice way to spend the time. Um, but of course, being summertime, it brings with it a lot of different things, Um and, uh, you know, you head down the beach, you get out in the sun, uh, you do those sorts of things. And I know we've been doing some research on sunburn, sunscreen, and all those sorts of things, which is, uh, very relevant after a, a big weekend you had in the sun last weekend, Jill. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your legs were looking a little lobster-like But we're going to get to that a little later today I thought we'd start off with a a couple of other things that pop out uh, during this hot weather and in fact, the first one that came to mind uh, was something that uh, you and I saw last summer uh, when we were in Adelaide going for a, a small bushwalk. And it's funny because I grew up in Adelaide, in the Adelaide Hills, and heard plenty of stories of these creatures, but I'd never actually seen one until that, uh, that day when we went for a walk together and suddenly this, uh, this brown creature slithers across our path. Of course, talking about the snake. <laughs>
1: It did almost feel like it leapt across our path. Was-
0: <laughs> I think you leapt out of the way. <laughs> and um, But the snake itself was just kind of slithering along. I think a little startled by us walking by. Um, yeah,
1: it was definitely bigger than I was, it felt.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was quite that uh, that large. Oh, but-
1: it's like the fisherman's story. Every time you tell it, the snake gets bigger. <laughs>
0: Well, the interesting thing about snakes is, uh, of course, summer is the time when we do tend to see a lot of them being a lot warmer. They're out and about, they're lazing in the sun, uh, especially if we walk through areas where they might be, we disturb them. Uh, But there's a bit of concern going on at the moment in terms of snake bites. And there's worry that there's going to be a rise in snake bite fatalities if hospitals aren't maintaining appropriate stocks of their antivenom. And this is coming out from the Australian Venom Research Unit, and uh, the head of that unit, David Williams, is uh, quite concerned. Uh, Dr Williams was especially surprised at regional hospitals being complacent regarding stocks of anti uh, given they're most likely to treat the state by victims in regional areas. Um, you know, Historically, it's been a product that's been available in hospitals, even in the remote, most remote corners of the country. And as a result of that, we actually have a really low fatality rate of, uh, for snake bites. It's one or two a year on average, um, which is pretty low considering yeah. that uh, there's plenty of snakes out there and I'm sure there's plenty of people getting bitten. Um, so it's, it's interesting that uh, a lot of uh, rural areas prefer to apply first aid in the case of a snake bite and transfer the patient to a larger regional centre. Um, You know, some places like uh, a doctor in Albury was saying that they've stopped stocking anti-venom three years ago. Um, Previously, they'd stocked it for 30 years, and in the 30 years they were there, they'd never seen a snake bite that included or involved envenomation. Um, And that's the interesting thing, I guess, with Ah. snake bites, is that uh, while many people might be bitten, the uh, venom actually getting in is... uh, is a much rarer occurrence. Quite often it just ends up on the, uh, the skin surface uh, and doesn't actually pierce the skin.
1: So does the snake choose when they envenomate someone or is it, you know, just luck of the draw?
0: that's a good question i'm not sure i know um certainly it depends on which part of the body they're biting into as to how uh how well they can penetrate that area of skin uh and how deep they can go uh, as to whether the poison does uh make its way into the body uh but i think it's uh it's actually quite low in terms of numbers where snake venom enters the body uh the, the big concern for doctors when treating is they are wary of antivenom because it can have a risk of anaphylaxis and serious reactions. Um, so it's not just, you know, uh, <laughs> put the antivenom and it's going to be all right no matter what. There are other risks involved in there as well. So it's it's an interesting thing.
1: Well, if you are going to have an anaphylactic reaction in hospital is probably the best place that you could have that sort of reaction because they'll be able to deal with it there
0: yeah yeah well that's right I mean and this is comparing uh, rural doctors to hospitals here um, yeah. we're talking about the doctors and of course the doctors yes will be able to deal with that but being in hospital is even better um, in other in some other areas like in uh, country Victoria around uh, the Alpine health region they've actually got deals to share their anti-venom with uh, the vet. Uh, because of ah. course, uh, dogs um, can uh, dogs especially can get bitten uh, by snakes during summer, um, and so it's it's an interesting one because. Um, If you look at the statistics, uh, snakebite deaths are plateauing, which is a good thing, uh, of course. But the reality is uh, because most areas are well supplied. And if you start pulling the anti-venom out, that statistic is going to change. In realistic terms, snakebite fatalities were far more common in the 40s and 50s than they are now. And because, and that's uh, not even taking into account the smaller population there. So the rate per capita back in the oh, 40s yeah. and 50s would have been much, much higher uh, than what we've got now. But because we do have a, um, a anti, a lot more anti venom developed now. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, funding for anti-venom is delivered to public hospitals in their overall drugs budget, uh, but hospitals do make their own decisions as to whether they stock supplies of anti-venom, which are relatively expensive. And there's no federal approach to ensuring hospitals have anti-venom, but the Department of Health said it did subsidize costs by providing funding to vaccine manufacturer Securus to ensure anti-venoms were manufactured and supplied to the open Australian market. Uh, so, according to them, price is not an adequate excuse. Uh, you know, when you think about it, uh, I mean, it's 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 an interesting one because a single dose of antivenom can cost between $1,500 and 2000 Yeah. Which is a pretty massive amount.
1: And with Albury saying they weren't using it, like they hadn't used much in 30 years. Yeah. So, they
0: yeah well that's um, right and when you when you consider the the stocks of anti venom you probably have to have a couple of different um uh well actually no that's that's a lie that's not what they tell you anymore in first aid I think they had um a lot of people trying to identify snakes when they got bitten, yeah. and they were spending too much time trying to identify a snake and getting it wrong um and so now they just say just um treat the wound with first aid and go and see a doctor. Yeah. Uh, I think they can take a little swab from the outer surface of the skin uh, to try and see what's going on there. Um, but, yeah, when when it does cost that much for antivenom, you're going to have to have multiple in stock. So, you know, you're looking close to ten grand probably with a few different antivenoms in stock. And they do have a use-by date too. They're a biological product, so they do have a yeah. use-by date of about three years, um, which means... It's it's probably, you know, ten grand that just gets chucked out every three years.
1: So yeah, it's sort of they've got to weigh up what's worthwhile. But then I wonder if the change in fatality is not all due to the anti venom, but also the wider spread and better training first aid. Like, a lot more people are trained in first aid these days than Possibly in the 50s, 60s, it's a lot quicker to get to a hospital back than back in, you know, there's more cars. Mm. So there's a lot of factors that could be altering that fatality rate rather than just the That's anti-venom. True.
0: That's true. There is a lot happening out there. Uh, it would be interesting. To, I don't have the stats, unfortunately, yeah. um, of uh, of snake bites uh, versus uh, snakes and, and, you know, comparing yeah, the fatalities the to that. Yeah, um, but that would be an interesting one. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's 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 one of those things, I think, we start to treat something too well and uh, then we get lax about it. It's almost, you know, you're almost getting into the anti-vax style debate yeah. here where people aren't seeing the consequences of the things they're being vaccinated for, but all it takes is a few outbreaks and suddenly, you know, measles is back again and all that sort of thing, Um
1: and the dogs is an interesting one, how you said they were sharing the anti-venom with the vet, because I know that often vets won't use anti-venom because it's quite expensive. Mm. Um, so it's too, you know, most people don't want to pay that for a dog, which, you know, I would, but <laughs> each to their own. Yeah. And so they don't often have it. But I know CSIRO has actually developed a um, an anti-venom for, that is for dogs, that is cheaper. So it's um slightly different in the way that it works and it's possibly not as potent as the human one I'm not sure on all the details but mm. I know they have looked at doing one specific for dogs that is a lot cheaper so it is more wi- able to be more widely available yeah. because dogs are probably one of the biggest risks because when we see a snake we back off mm. dogs will often see a snake and jump right in yeah so yeah
0: that's right uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, that's that's a really interesting innovation, though, right there to see a cheaper version. I wonder if it'll eventually flow down to humans, where we can make a a cheaper version of this antiveneme. Yeah. Let's see how we go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, look. Uh, that uh, that's one part of summer is the the snakes out and about. Um, and I was trying to, um, after your sunburn, which we'll get to after the song, <laughs> I was trying to think, well, what, what have I done this summer that's a bit different uh, that I've probably started because of summer? And I thought, well, I've gone running this summer. That was that was a bit of a New Year's resolution, a bit of I should take advantage of it while it's warm and get out there and start running.
1: And you worry about it being too warm.
0: Well, that's right. You have to you have to get up early before it gets too hot. Yeah. Um, But uh, one of the interesting things about running that's come out just recently is uh, the security breach uh, from these running tracking apps. Ah, especially did uh, you hear about that? Yeah, so Strava, which is one of the biggest fitness tracking apps, has ended up releasing their heat maps of um, where people run. Um, So currently uh, Strava collects data from phones and fitness trackers such as Fitbit um, and this app allows people to share their routine with friends and followers which is you know I think that's slightly weird in the first place that you're sharing (laughs) where you're going for a run and all that sort of thing you know uh, who knows uh, who's going to catch up with you but I guess if it's you know select friends and people then it's okay um but what they've done is they've aggregated this data into a heat map so there's no personal details on there um but it is showing uh on maps where people run and so the the more people running there the brighter the spots appear on this heat map they've collected data between 2015 and 2017 and uh, what they found was that uh And, in fact, this was found by a 20-year-old Australian university student, Nathan Ruser, who noticed the map showed the locations and running routines at places such as uh, military bases in the Middle East and other conflict zones.
1: Yeah, he said he was looking at it. So, he was listening to The Hottest 100, and then he is actually in international security and relations or something, studying that. Mm. And he was then just sort of looking at it casually and was like, hey, why don't I look here?
0: Yeah, well, he's been following the situation in Syria since 2014 yeah. as part of his yeah, international security interests, and so um, decided to take a look <laughs> over there. And, uh, yeah, it was lit up like a Christmas tree, was what he said. Um, it's, it's quite amazing uh, to see, and it's interesting because in uh, countries like uh, Australia, for example, we're pretty highly populated. In fact, if you look... At the uh, the map of Australia, I had it a minute ago. Here we are. Um, uh, you can you can kind of see where most of our population is if you look out at Australia at a whole. Um, there's a lot of bright lights all along uh, the east coast, um, with with uh, big uh, brighter areas around the the capital cities of Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, it looks like, uh, and, and it spreads out through most of Victoria and a lot of country New South Wales There's some bright spots in Adelaide and Perth too And then there's some um, some little dots that come up in uh, Alice Springs and Darwin I can see one in Broome And I reckon there's one in Mount Isa too that, that you can see from the distant map So there are, you know, you can kind of see where our population is Because you're looking mm. at that broader scale um, but then when you do zoom down into areas where there's not much, not many people, um, what it tells you is it doesn't just give you a big bright blur, but it actually shows you the specific paths that people are taking. Um, which is, is really quite worrying um, because you can establish a couple of things from this so you can see the buildings which are most used on there uh, you can see the jogging routes of soldiers and you can also establish a pattern for the base um, so if uh if you can see uh, bright areas and less bright areas, then you know that many people run through that area or make their way through that area mm-hmm. um, versus the, the less bright areas. Um, yeah, when uh, Nathan Rusa was looking at it online, he saw the main supply highway for US forces in Syria <laughs> where their supplies go in and out. And, uh, and he remembers thinking, uh, Expletive, that's not good. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's certainly not a good thing. You're finding patrol routes, you're finding isolated bases as well. Um, other analysts since Nathan's discovery have scanned the map too, and they've found missile sites and patrol routes around the world. Um, it's, it's really a security nightmare. Uh, you know a hacking group or a non state group terrorists could easily target that data um that's just being automatically collected uh by us and we're putting it out there
1: so is so like is this information available to You know, groups that may be against the US military being in Syria.
0: Very much so. So, It's public information. What
1: is the US doing since Nathan's pointed it out to them?
0: Well, there's a couple of things. Um, So Strava does allow users to create a privacy zone, um, so a tool that obscures activity within a pre-selected radius. Um, And so I'm making the assumption there that... uh, um that uh that would be someone doing it around their own home mm. um so you know it cuts out as you go to home uh, and that sort of thing um but you know there's also um uh Strava has just released it um and it it's an interesting one so in the US the uh uh Pentagon uh was uh, I think now, I'm just trying to confirm on my notes here. One of the best places in terms of th- there were just no tracks around the Pentagon. Uh, and so Is that because co-
1: they're all lazy and none of them go running?
0: <laughs> no, I <I'd>, I <I'd, laughs> contend that they're actually um, a bit better at managing their staff yeah. and, and high levels of security. So they've probably set up those exclusion zones around the area. Um and, and that sort of thing. But it, it does give defence and intelligent community a reminder to triple-check, you know, that they're all over all these emerging technologies. Um if, uh, in Australia, the map even shows uh, movements at the uh, Pine Gap facility in the Northern Territory, which is one of our uh, most secret military institutions around there. So, it'd be Not interesting. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's been known that it's there forever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's there's uh, lots of risks here, and of course, there's also the risk in the end that Strava itself, uh, the website, could become the target of uh, nations or. or Uh, non-state based terrorist groups trying to mine its data to discover identifiable information too about who is wearing the devices um so it'd be an interesting combination uh yeah, so there's there's a few interesting interesting things happening here. Yeah, um, but from it all, there's also some really interesting maps that have come out too, um, and and some great pictures. And one of one of them is uh, North Korea and South Korea. Uh, so in South Korea, you can see the Strava heat map there is quite bright, lots of uh, roads uh, going throughout the uh, nation, and then in uh, North Korea, it's basically black. Uh, there, is, <laughs> there is nothing happening there except. Except there's a small amount of activity in Pyongyang, the capital. And this is most likely activity from visitors and resident foreigners. uh, Because uh, foreigners in North Korea are able to buy SIM cards, which can give them 3G internet access. But locals aren't. Um, So there are people running. And there's also some of the activity on uh, the map matches up with the uh, Pyongyang Marathon, which I didn't know that existed. So there you go. (laughs) They do a Pyongyang Marathon. Um, Another interesting site where there has been some people tracked is in Chernobyl, in the Ukraine. Um, So there's some activity around the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster site, um, just tracking around the edges and the paths there. Are
1: they too close or...?
0: Uh, Oh, well, they're in the site. It is in the exclusion zone there. Mm -hmm. Um, But tourists are slowly getting into the area a little bit more um, despite the health risks there. Um, There's tracks towards Mount Everest too. Um, and that's a really interesting one because there's a bright track coming from base camp um, and, either so- and there's the two approaches to the mountain and then they just kind of slowly fizzle out as you get higher and higher up the mountain towards the peak um, because, of course, less and less people um, make it to the summit. Uh, very yeah. few people reach the top. Um, and so there's just a very tiny speck of activity um, on the map at the top. Um, and back home in Australia, we do have a, a wonderful uh, tracking around Uluru, um, and there's there's a couple of uh, big hotspots, uh, which are a couple of the areas where people. Do visit around the rock, um, no. and there's some great dreaming around there that they talk about. Um, and there is a wonderful track around the outside of the rock, and then there still is, unfortunately, yes, a small we'll path of people the climbing people. up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it gives me some heart to see that uh, the track around the outside is much brighter than the track that's going up the rock. Um, but the fact there it still is that track going up the rock there is a bit uh, disappointing for sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's an uh, interesting use of that data there that we're being tracked with, uh, and it just makes you consider, you know, with all the technology that we have, uh, we are progressing at a very fast rate in the tech world, but we really do need to consider what implications that actually has Yeah, for the us.
1: security things we put in place to go along with it. So, mm. yeah, yeah, watching I mean, some Black Mirror episodes... Recently, And, you know, some of the technologies they come up with, and obviously it's, you know, a futuristic thing, but all the data they can gather and how it can be used in various kinds of ways was yeah. quite interesting.
0: Well, China's currently proposing a rating system for their... Uh, population uh, which is very similar to one of the black mirror episodes where everyone had kind of like an uber ranking out of five stars uh china is currently exploring that for their citizens
1: oh wow yeah
0: which is a very black mirror indeed
1: yeah so i suggest people watch that in china (laughs) because it didn't turn out well
0: no no that's right so very interesting stuff but uh, yeah it, it does certainly show the um the progress we're making in terms of technology and, and what we do need to be wary of. Although I still get amazed, though, when I go for a run because I do have a, a GPS watch, um, which is um, uh, doesn't track me all the time. I turn it on and off when I <laughs> want to be tracked. Um, but I run with that on my wrist and my iPod Shuffle on my back and the amount of computing power that I have on my body would far outweigh the amount of computing power that we had back home with our first PC, <laughs> uh, which I just I just find amazing every time. You know the the few four gig of um, hard drive space I have on my iPod uh, was was much much bigger than we ever had on our first computer at home back in uh, what would that have been early nineteen nineties. Yeah, uh, yeah, progressed
1: pretty quickly. That's right. I mean, I'd be interested to see what data Pokemon Go's been gathering. Because yeah. that's who's got the data on me. So
0: <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> Maybe that's going to be the next big hack. It's yeah. uh, which defence personnel are playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. The time is eleven twenty seven right here on two XFM uh, ninety eight point three on the dial. This is Community Radio here in Canberra. Fuzzy Logic with you and we're going to take a short break from our Science of Summer to play a song for us. I'm Vance, Vance Joy, Vance Joy, oh gosh, i got to get that right. Vance Joy with uh, Riptide there. You're listening to an Adelaidean struggling to pronounce things right here on Fuzzy Logic, 98.3 FM, 2 double X Community Radio. And today on Fuzzy, Broderick and Jill in the studio, and we are talking about summer-based science. That's right, the science of summer. Uh, we've started off by talking about the snakes that make their way out, and then we talked about going for that summer a jog and getting into that. But now we're going to move into something else. Well, actually I I'm going to change my mind slightly. I promised you that we were going to talk about sunburn with Jill, and I promise you we will get to that because I'm curious about the science of sunburn because I've got burnt enough times too that I, I kind of want to know what's going on. Uh, but that song that I just played by Vance Joy, "Riptide," was of course the number one in the Hottest 100 a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm just trying to look up which year, and I can't see it immediately on my seat. Sorry, what was it? I think was that? it was uh,
1: 20. 14 20, 2015?
0: yeah somewhere around then somewhere around then it was it was when he was just breaking out and it's a wonderful song um, and uh, unlike the winner of this year's Triple J hottest 100 Kendrick Lamar with his horrible rapping uh, thing I'm not an oh, old man an I swear <laughs> yeah. uh, I think there are a bit few people who are disappointed with that but you you found this interesting story Jill that someone had actually uh, predicted who was going to be number one, in fact, had predicted that Kendrick Lamar was going to win uh, before it had even been announced.
1: Yeah, so there's um, a lot of people that have been working to predict the Hottest 100. Mm. So a lot of people like to look into it. And so it's a, this one is... He's been actually pretty correct for the past few years. His name's Nick White, and he's a computer science graduate from the University of New South Wales. And he's... His one is called 100 Warm Tuners. Okay. So I think it's, you know, hottest 100. I don't know why tuners, but. Tuna tuna
0: is is like the new word for a banger. If it's a good Ah. song, it's a tuner. As as they said on the hottest 100, it was uh, better than a Japanese fish fish market with all the massive tuners they had.
1: Ah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So So it's it's called 100 Warm Tuners. Yeah. And he's developed it, and he collects data from Instagram posts. So Instagram posts, if they're tagged with the hashtags, Hottest 100, Triple J Hottest 100, Triple J Hottest 100 2016 or 2017, whatever year it happens to be, and Hottest 100 2017. So he looks each year at those hashtags.
0: Wait, so uh, surely those hashtags just go against people's voting like, you well, know, how you get the little thing yeah, that the says little the so, you yeah. vote for.
1: So, people are posting pictures of what they voted right. for. So, he looks for those hashtags. So,
0: he's just adding up people's votes.
1: Yeah. Using a computer program to do it. Because okay. it's not just, like, full... Because it's going to take a long time if you yeah, literally just okay. sit there and scroll through it. Yeah. So, he is. He's just adding up. But it's not everyone's votes. I know I vote, yeah. and I don't post my votes on Instagram. Mm. And there would be a lot of other people that don't. That's so, true. I think he said he gets about 2% of the voting population because it was about 2 million people that voted this year
0: Uh, yeah I I think it was 2 million votes 2 million votes by about 10 so um, 200,000
1: 250,000
0: yeah yeah, which is about right Um, so that's a
1: lot of people voting so yeah Yeah. he gets I think he thinks about 2% Mm. Um, he did it last year and he shared it and he got the top 3 and you know this year he did it and he got the top 1 so he had predicted predict- that Ken Kendrick Lamar would be number one. Right. And which becomes interesting because people do bet on this. So I don't know when he released... This data comes out regularly as people start posting. Yeah. So I yeah, wonder yeah. if this I, then- He had
0: released it before Triple J had released the Hottest 100. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Does he do any sort of data analysis on it? Like has a, like tries to get a good, uh, you know, uh, cross-popular... Sorry cross-population, uh, you know, range of people that are going to vote on it. Like, obviously, there's only a certain um, demographic that will be voting in the hottest 100, which is people who listen to Triple J yeah. generally. Um, but is he trying to, to reach the various areas of that demographic?
1: No, all he's looking for is anyone that does those tags on okay. Instagram. So okay. anyone that posts their votes or right. posts something about what they're voting with those hashtags. Yeah. So then he get calculates it. He got... The others, he got most of the top ten in there,
0: yeah,
1: but he didn't get them all in the right order.
0: Okay, okay. So
1: it's not a hundred percent, yeah, because again, it's you know based on a small population. Because and it's probably possibly a younger portion of the population that are posting those on Insta-
0: Instagram. That's right, yeah. You know,
1: I'm not. I know a lot of people even older than me that still vote that aren't
0: yeah. posting
1: on Instagram. But it is quite interesting that yeah. he. Has been able to use science to predict.
0: Yeah, well, that, that massive data collection, kind of like we were talking about before with the Strava running, um, yeah. collecting that data that's just out there um, to put it together. Um, well, there's an interest, another interesting uh, collection of data that's been happening this summer, um, which was at the Australian Open uh, tennis tournament. And... Uh, a group called the Game Insight Group, which is a collaboration between Tennis Australia and Victoria University, came up with a range of statistics that drilled down into a player's performance to kind of represent what goes on on court and try and find out what the score doesn't show um, and how they can use that to predict the winners. Um, So for the past uh, few decades, main tennis stats were derived from score patterns, uh, which was essentially, you know, Who scored what when? Um, What the what the umpire is entering into their uh, iPad or laptop? Uh, But when you take a close look at those stats, you actually can't explain who won a match or why. Um, In fact. It's uh, not an uncommon thing for players to have the same number of points uh, at the end of a match, um, yet one player has still won because they've scored the right points at the right time. as opposed Um, to just more points. That's right. And, in in fact, it can happen. Um, Last year's second-round Australian Open match between Novak Djokovic and the then-world number one, Dennis Istomin... uh, World number 117, sorry, uh, Dennis Istomin. So... uh, Novak Djokovic right up there, Denis Istomin uh, much lower. On paper, Djokovic's match stats were best, more serves, returned more shots than Istomin, and won more points to boot. But he lost that match. <laughs> so why did he lose? Well, it's, it's, um, it's something they're trying to look at now. And uh, to do it, they're actually looking at various uh, amounts of data. But one of the data sources that they do have access to is the Hawkeye system. Uh, so that's the yeah. the system that's used to watch if a ball goes in or out of court, um, and it has to collect vast amounts of data through its ten cameras. And what they end up with is a wealth of data on every shot played throughout a match that you can then start to explore from a range of statistical perspectives. Uh, so unlike the hottest one hundred, <laughs> these guys are doing some stats on this. Um, and so one of the stats they were showing around the Australian Open was win prediction, and as as it, you might guess it predicts the percentage chance that a given player will end up winning the match. Um, And so a big part of predicting a winner is their ranking. Um, But the uh, rankings uh, can be a bit off at times. Um, So no matter... So, yeah, so the rankings are tallied from tournament results uh, no matter what your opponent's ranking is. Uh, so beating the number three in the world will be worth more points than beating the number 200. Um, so there's a range of different things they talk about in those rankings um, there. So that kind of plays into the win index there. But then there's things like the clutch index. Uh, so that's sort of those big points um, that commentators talk about. You know, there's a big point to win Um, And current statistics really don't illustrate if a player rises to the challenge at those critical moments or they do the opposite, they choke. And uh, that's where the clutch is, the the ability to perform under pressure. Um, And so they've applied this to tennis. Um, And so in tennis, uh, clutch mathematically considers every point in the match. Uh, match point is the most important point in the match, so it has the highest weighting. then every other point has relative weights off that. so obviously if you're going to win the set it's worth much more than if it's the first first uh, serve in, in, a, in a game yeah. um, and that sort of thing so and you know 30 40 in the first game of the match is going to have a different weighting to 30 40 in the third set uh, when it's five all and both players have won a set each. So from that, you can actually generate an index of a player's clutch ability and how many of those particularly important points do they win versus how many do they lose. And so if you go back to that djokovic Istomin match that I spoke about earlier, Djokovic won more points in that. But when they were weighted according to importance, he fell behind which would be expected because Easterman won that match. Same with uh, serve and return measures. Um, So interestingly, they applied this clutch to uh, a lot of the tennis players and and one of the ones that came out on top was Serena Williams, (laughs) uh, which is hardly surprising uh, in there as well. Um, And so they went through a range of statistics, also looking at work rate, time pressure, um, and uh, feeding them all into... Uh, the different parts that uh, make up a tennis player and so you know they're finding huge amounts of detail in these statistics um you know like uh, in the singles final last year uh Roger Federer's shots were on average 60 milliseconds faster to reach the net than Nadal's so when Federer is hitting his ball his uh, his shots are reaching the net 0.06 of a second faster than Nadal who would have been one of his biggest competitors yeah. um so just showing that you know he's got those those big um hits back that are doing a bit more um so you know there's it, it's looking at a range of different things and trying to feed those statistics in um which is really interesting to see how we can rely on those stats now
1: yeah I wonder how that's playing into again the betting industry and how that's yeah, affecting that with well, people definitely. being able to look at these sorts of stats and going, oh, am I going to bet on this person because they've got the good clutch? And again, it can come down to day.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So quite interesting indeed. Anyway, let's uh, let's get out of data now. Let's get into some uh, medical science and we're going to take <laughs> a look at uh, the back of your legs, Jill, that horrible, horrible sunburn that you got on Australia Day. Um, what's going on with it?
1: Well, it's not too bad anymore. It's, it's actually healing. started to peel. Oh, good! So, and which I've always been worried about the peeling. I'm always like, no, I'm gonna, you know, it's really bad. It's gonna be terrible.
0: Mm. Um,
1: but yeah, doing some learning about sunburn. Yeah. Obviously, I um, have a naturally sort of oliveish skin, so sunburn is never something I've had to overly deal with in my time. Um, until Australia Day when I decided to fall asleep in the sun without sunscreen on, which (laughs) I do not recommend doing.
0: Not a good idea?
1: Not a good idea. Could not sit down. I had really (laughs) sore, red, hot, like really, really hot. Um, It then started getting itchy and now peeling. So there's a lot of different things that come from sunburn and obviously we all know ways to avoid it is the sunscreen is always a good one. Yeah. Hats you know, staying out of the sun, all of those. And we do need some vitamin D, so you've got to, you know, be smart about it. But sunburn is actually caused by, not by the heat from the sun. So we do get heat waves from the sun. You feel that nice on your skin. It's actually from the UV waves, which is the ultraviolet waves that come down from the sun. So ones we can't even see. And there are three different types of UV waves that come from the sun. There's UVA, UVB, and UVC. UVC is mostly soaked up by the ozone layer. So as long as, you know, we keep that pretty happy and content right there, we'll get rid of those UVC waves. So they're gone. The UVA and the UVB are the ones we've got to worry about. So the UVA is the ones that sort of lead to more wrinkles and age spots. So that's the UV aging, I like to call it. Right, yeah. And then the next one is the UV burning. So that's... (laughs) The UVB is the one that gives you those horrible sunburns. Right. And... It's the one... What it does is when it hits your skin, your body starts... You've got melanin. So, melanin is a pigment that people have in their skin. Um, darker people have more. Lighter yeah. people have less.
0: And that's kind of what gives freckles their colour too.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. we've got, you know, different amounts burst of... of melanin. Yeah. Melanin that gives us our colour. And it is our defence against the sun. So, when melanin starts feeling these rays hitting it, it actually kicks into gear... And it will move around. And if you only get hit by a certain amount of sun, the melanin spreads out and comes to the surface, which is what gives you that suntan that we're also Mm. generously looking for. (laughs) Um, So that's what the melanin does. But it can come to the surface and um, fight it out. But when you're hit with too much for too long, you're actually damaging your DNA. So DNA is made up of four base pairs. You've got A, T, G, and C. Yeah. And the A and T like to go together. That's right. The yeah, G and yeah. C like to go together, I'm trying to remember back to year ten science. Yeah. Um what can happen is it can actually split apart that DNA. So split the double helix and then they get two Ts joining. And you're actually creating um like a really damaged cell. Yeah. And that's what can cause some of the really bad sunburn. Um And the reason that we then peel is because those damaged cells, our body is getting rid of them. Right. So that's what the peeling is. It's all those cells that have been damaged. They turn into autopsis, I think it's called. They undergo autopsis, which means they die. Yeah. And our body gets rid of them through this peeling process.
0: Right. So if we've only got sunburnt on that sort of top layer there, then it's getting rid of most of the effects of that.
1: Yeah, and it Um, will push it up and get rid of all those dead cells that we don't want. Um, The pain and everything comes from your body trying to heal itself. So if you've ever had a cut, what happens when it gets infected? It hurts. It hurts, but what does it feel? Temperature-wise.
0: Oh, it does get warm. It goes and warm. It gets a little bit swollen too and inflamed, but it gets and warm. And red. Yeah. And it goes
1: cut, like, all of that. Yeah. So that's your body. It's feeling this reaction, so it's sending all the defense mechanisms to heal you. Uh, okay. So sending blood to help cool you down and heal you, yeah. and that's the itching where the, you know, the, the blood goes to the surface of the yeah. skin. Um, that's what the red comes from. That's all the blood that's being sent there to help heal the body. The inflammation is because, um, like, the soreness is, yeah, that sort of infection, sort Mm. of, you know, your body trying to fight off the infection is all that extra blood going to that area. Okay. So that's why we do feel those sort of different things. Um, Not all of... So when I say we mutate our DNA to the TT, that doesn't mean it's going to cause a cancer. It's actually the melanin that becomes the cancer.
0: Ah, right. Hence the
1: name melanoma. melanoma yeah. And why it then becomes often a mole, because that's that real, that's one, that's that melanin cell that's gone haywire. Yeah. And that's cu- turned into that mole that's producing too much melanin and producing weird sort of reactions. So okay.
0: It's, so it's not the sunburn itself, it's the, the melanin spots that uh, that we get. It's um, the
1: damage of those melanin yeah, so, cells. Sunburn does lead to it because you've yeah, obviously damaged more cells.
0: Yeah, but that's why we, we we're told to keep an eye on those those freckles that change, uh, that pop up suddenly and change size and go black and those sorts of things because that's where the the cancerous problems are stemming from.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. that melanin causing right. issues. So, um, yeah. So it's actually the reason it takes a while for sunburn to set in is because you've got that exposure and it takes the body that long to start realizing that you've got that issue Mm. and sending so your body's damaged straight away yeah but it takes that time for it to send all the the stuff all the blood and all of that to help heal and that's why it feels hot not because you've had the heat so it's very different to a heat burn
0: yeah um, uh, that makes that makes so much more sense now, because yeah i'd always thought it was a bit like a heat burn, and of course with a heat burn uh you you treat that with uh cold water running cold water over it for twenty to thirty minutes yeah um and that that does the job because basically you're dissipating as much of the heat that's contained in that out of uh your Uh, But, of course, there's uh, other responses in there, uh, part of the sunburn uh, response, so that explains why going in cool water does help, um, but it doesn't uh, dissipate all that heat that's that's sitting there. Yeah, it
1: doesn't fix it because Mm. that's not the main cause of it. So it does, yeah, help to relieve that heat. Um, And the aloe gels as well, they help to relieve the heat and keep the skin sort of soft and smooth but you really just have to let your body
0: do its job heal itself yeah Yeah,
1: and definitely stay out of the sun because the more you know you'll if those cells are already damaged and you give them more radiation they're just Mm. going to receive more damage yeah and that's where sunscreen comes in because sunscreen works on two different levels um obviously one of the levels it works on you remember a lot of people back in the day with all like the white across their faces and all the You know, the zinc zinc and all those. And that's a physical protector. Yeah. So sunscreen these days still does have the physical protector, but we've just made the minerals and things in it a lot smaller so it, you know, actually goes into our skin so we don't look like we've got things across our (laughs) face. Um, But it's also... So that helps to physically protect from all UV radiation. Yeah. And then there's um, a chemical protector that at the moment is mostly only protecting from... The UVB rays, not so much from the UVA. Okay. So when you get a sunscreen, it will say... I think they have to say that it's from the UVB. That's yeah. the sun protect. That's your FPF. SPF. SPF, yeah. The sun protection factor. And that's against the UVB. A lot of them will say UVA and UVB, but they don't have to list their protection against the UVA. So that's your ageing. So yeah, yeah. anyone that doesn't want wrinkles. <laughs> and the SPF factor which I didn't actually know what it really meant, yeah. is how much longer it will protect you for. So if you have an SPF 15, it will protect you for 15 times longer than not having it. Okay. So that, you know, is also then affected by who you are as a person. Darker skin has more melanin, which means we protect our- it protects our skin a lot more than lighter-fed people, yeah. lighter-skinned people. So 15 times for... You know, if you're going to burn in ten minutes, then you've got 150 minutes. Yeah, right. Um, SPF 50 obviously yeah. protects for a lot longer than that, 50 times. Yeah. But they do recommend putting it on because sunscreen can wash off, it can yeah. rub off, and
0: that's right. Yeah, most have to people have
1: tested their.
0: Well, and this is one of those urban. I don't know whether it's an urban myth or whether it's true that I've heard is um that uh, people um. They don't have SPF uh, 100 out there in Australia uh, because they worry that people think it's a percentage and so 100 would equi- be equivalent to 100% in some people's minds and 100% protection. But, of course, no sunscreen is 100% protection. It's, uh, it's just increasing the, uh, the, the chances of blocking all those rays uh, yeah. when you do put it on regularly.
1: And, again, yeah, it's not blocking everything yeah there yeah. will still be bits that get through and
0: yeah well a study that's come out of uh brisbane recently the queensland institute of medical research uh has found that uh, the incidences of uh, melanoma in young people are decreasing oh, um, which good. is really good um so people under the age of 40 uh decline in melanoma rates uh, but melanoma rates are still rising in older australians and rising very steeply for our oldest australians who are still unfortunately paying the price for sun exposure incurred in the post-war era. Um, so even if they are being good now, um, their their sun exposure from many years ago is is coming back to haunt them. Um, yeah, there, those
1: which, cells can be Yeah, already. that's right.
0: So it's never too late to start applying sunscreen. Um, even in your older age, it can still have benefits for you. Um, and in fact, this study also had a look and, and determined that if sun- Australians use sunscreen regularly, the incidence of melanoma could reduce by about a third by 2031, which is about 28,000 fewer people being diagnosed with melanoma. Um, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's probably not going to happen like that. And a more realistic scenario uh, would see the population increasing sunscreen use by about five percent each year, and that would reduce our melanomas by about ten percent each year. And uh, you know, you may think that increasing sunscreen use would have a be a higher figure, but uh, the researchers there have said that sunscreen isn't a hundred percent effective. No sunscreen is. Um, So we still have to uh, maintain other ways in the uh, slip-slop-slap-wrap. And I think there's another one now as well. Uh, I can't remember. But, yeah, we have to do all the different bits and pieces to uh, look after ourselves in the sun.
1: Yeah, although then, you know, don't worry about the decreasing amounts of vitamin D and things like that, so...
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, you you still have to be careful uh, no matter what way you're looking at it there. Um, So, yeah, so that's uh, staying safe in the sun, um, of course, especially when you're down the beach and that sort of stuff, in and out of the water, that sunscreen is going to wash off. Um, But uh, being down the beach is certainly a big part of summer as well. Yeah, yeah. And seeing the creatures down there, and uh, as well as getting sunburned over Australia Day, I know you had some fantastic snorkels. Yes. uh, And saw some beautiful creatures in the oceans. Yes. What sort of stuff did you spot?
1: I spotted a couple of seahorses.
0: Oh, lovely. A fiddler
1: ray. Many, 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 many octopuses. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a wonderful and lots of different fish.
0: Yeah. Luckily no. didn't
1: see any of the other nasties that you can get in summer.
0: <laughs> oh, like the sharks and that sort of no, thing. No, the
1: blue bottles.
0: Ah. Well yeah. they don't really come down uh, this part of the world very often, do they? Blue
1: bottles. Yeah. Yeah, blue bottles are you know, prevalent. They're mostly a southern species. Ah. It's and they're painful, but the ones you've really got to watch out for are the northern ones, the box jellyfish and the irikangi. Yeah. So they're the really dangerous ones, but the blue bottles are the the ones that you see washed up on the beach that people like to go and pop.
0: And- ah, yeah. oh, yes, yes. Well, one of the other dangerous creatures in the ocean, not so much for humans, uh, but for the ocean creatures are the uh, crown of thorns starfish, uh, which are just like a massive pest. Uh, do they? I know uh, th- this story actually comes to us from the Great Barrier Reef, but are they a pest down south as well?
1: No, because they are coral feeders and they're right. actually a native species. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not that they're...
0: Oh, so they're not an invasive species at no, all? No, they've
1: just become a pest.
0: Ah, right. So I, there
1: are a lot of native species that can become pests given the right conditions.
0: That's really interesting because, um, yeah, I'd always made the assumption that they're an introduced species um, in the in the Great Barrier Reef, and that's why they were going so crazy there.
1: Nice. No, uh, it's-, no, it's
0: just the conditions and, and they're just getting more and more, uh, so, and we want to maintain the reef as it is.
1: It's often a lot... That they've gone crazy because we've taken away their predators.
0: Ah, yeah. Um,
1: because we fish and take um, one of their predators is the giant triton sa- uh, sea snail, and they've got a very, very, very beautiful shell. Ah, so a I lot see. of people are out collecting, taking shells, and as we do these practices more, we are going to see changes in, you know, in populations of different animals.
0: Yeah. Well, there are volunteers up on uh, in the, the southern area of the Great Barrier Reef, so uh, off the coast of uh, Gladstone uh, there, who were um, t- putting in a control over the Crown of Thorns starfish over the southern Great Barrier Reef. And, in fact, in just seven days, they managed to kill 47,000 Crown of Thorns starfish.
1: Were they just collecting them and killing them? Or?
0: No, they were actually... Uh, injecting them as they went through ah. um so uh they were doing uh, operating in groups of 12 each group doing three dives a day with each dive lasting up to an hour uh, and on these dives starfish were injected in the shoulder with bile salts um to to kill them now where's the shoulder of a starfish
1: I would say it's probably between some it's between the arm and the central disc. I would yeah. think that would be the shoulder.
0: Yeah. So it would have a few shoulders around each of its arms.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if they have to put it in one or many yeah. shoulders.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting uh, thing. So they were doing it. So they were injecting the crown of thorns in the water. Um, but as they had that uh, huge number that they are injecting, uh, they die as they inject them. But then they let go of what they're holding on to, and so they end up like tumbleweeds in the water, um, just sort of dead, dead crown of thorns floating about. So the divers had to be really careful when they were down there that they didn't put their hand down on the dead ones in the yeah. swell um, and that sort of thing. Uh, so they did a lot of training on board and then got stuck into it. Well, um,
1: I know they are looking at developing an underwater robotic vehicle that can actually travel around and inject the starfish without the need for the people.
0: Yeah, that would be a much better way to do it. I mean, it's a fantastic effort by this crew. But yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, so I think
1: it's Queensland University is actually working on a remotely, op- like just one that can operate on its own, but yeah. they're trying to make sure they can get it to only do the crown of thorns. Yeah. So detect that one specifically, not other types of sea stars, and also inject it in the right spot. So there's sort of, you know, some robotics work on that sort of thing, on detecting the right type of thing. So that should be quite a good, you know, move forward for the Crown of Thorns. Yeah,
0: very interesting. bad
1: move for the Crown of Thorns, but good for (laughs) the Great Barrier Reef.
0: Indeed, indeed. Some great research coming out there. And I hope you listeners have enjoyed our uh, summer science stories this uh, fine summer's day on uh, the 4th of February right here on Fuzzy Logic. Thanks for joining me in the studio, Jill.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, you can find our podcast. Just search for Fuzzy Logic in the iTunes store or Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.com. My name is Broderick and thanks for tuning in for your Science on a Sunday.